I can guarantee that uh, two things are going to happen throughout the course of this sermon. One is we're going to talk about the Bible. The second thing is my voice is going to crack like it did when I was 15. <laughs> uh, and we're just not going to get around either one of those uh, this morning. Uh, Travis did introduce me. Thank you for that. My name, again, is Sam Forniker. I'm the Associate Rector at Church of the Incarnation in Harrisonburg. Uh, my family's pretty new. We got in, in uh, to the Valley in August. Uh, and in the meantime, I've had the pleasure of getting to know uh, Kevin and Kelly and Travis a bit and a few other faces that I see around the room. Um, it's a real pleasure to be with you guys this morning. Well, uh, until last year, my eldest son, Brooks, slept in a very cool, very overpriced, very Scandinavian house bed. It was one of these kids' beds that we ordered online that kind of comes in a flat pack set, and you get it, and then you assemble it. And when it's, when it's made, it's the frame of a house, if you see what I mean. And like uh, any flat pack furniture, the instructions that came with it warned us. Parents need to regularly inspect the nuts and bolts. And they say maybe once a year, go back and just tighten up the screws just to make sure that the thing is still holding together, that it's not getting wobbly. Lint provides just the opportunity we need to do that with our disciples. Lint uh, isn't about dialing up the intensity of our spiritual lives to 11. Um, thank you for the kitty laughs, <laughs> for the, the spinal tap people like it. Uh, it's not about dialing it up to 11. It's a much humbler goal. It's really just ticking up the intensity of our, uh, our walk with Christ a little bit. Lent reminds us to revisit the nuts and bolts of our discipleship just to make sure that our faith hasn't gotten wobbly. So this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to go back to the nuts and bolts, the basics. Our gospel reading ended with what is probably the most widely known verse in the whole Bible except for that one in Matthew about judge not, lest you, lest you be judged. No, even including that one. This is the most widely known verse in the Bible, and rightly so. For God so loved the world. Okay, pause. We said we want to get back to the basics, right? So let's talk. Let's resist the urge to blow past this remarkable statement that the scriptures give us. God loved the world. Why? Let's linger for a moment on this amazing truth. God loved the world. 
it's not complicated. But it is A, uh, a spiritual hero of mine, a 17th century uh, bishop in England called William Beveridge, lingered on these words, like I'm inviting us to do this morning. And I just want to read to you his reflection on it. Listen to how he responds to this truth. God, the infinite, almighty, eternal God, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, essence itself existing in and of himself and giving existence to all things else, the creator, preserver, and governor of the whole world who is everywhere, knows all things, does whatsoever he pleases in heaven and earth, the first of all causes, the fountain of all lights, the principle of all motions, the center of all perfections, holiness, wisdom, power, justice, truth, goodness, love itself. He so loved me. I love the prayer, the service of morning prayer that we're doing this morning. Um, it really doesn't need to be a contingency. There are prayers in this service that um, Anglican congregations for the past four or five hundred years have said on a weekly basis, even on a daily basis. One of those prayers, we're going to pray right at the end of the service. It's called the General Thanksgiving. And in that prayer, we're going to recount all the ways in which God has loved the world. We're going to bless him for his love in creating us from nothing. And for continuing, as I'm standing here and as you're sitting there, for con uh, continuing to sustain us in existence, guiding us and governing us by his providence. But another thing the great Thanksgiving, the general Thanksgiving is going to show us is that it's in our redemption that God's immeasurable love stretches to its infinite length. For God so loved the world, that is, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. And again, linger on it. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, John says in his first epistle, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is an astounding thought. And if this has become old news to you, or laissez-faire, wake up. This should This should, this should be like a eating a low country boil. Okay, so I was just talking to somebody about low country. Do we all know what low country boil is? Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, spicy corn. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I know. Okay. It stings. It's spicy. It stings the gums. It should have that same kind of impact. This ought to smack us 
who is even able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of this love? Listen to the psalmist. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? Cared, yes, but more. Loved. And not loved only, but loved in this way. That the God who loves us, gave his only begotten son, his beloved one from eternity so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our creator, our sustainer, our governor and our judge giving his beloved son so that every enemy of God, that's us, who comes to Christ and trusts in him will have eternal life. Can I ask you, would you, would you even dare to believe that if God had not said it himself? The Bible says that we are born enemies. We are born into hostility with God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Do you have the guts or the audacity to believe that not only does this God care for us, no, but he loves us. And not only does he love us, but he loves us so much that he gave his only son. God has, he has no need of us. He's uh, never, even in reconciling us to himself, he's never gaining anything from us. We don't add anything to God. We don't. And yet, he gave his only son. Because even though he doesn't lack it, he desires it. He longs to draw us to himself. And why he longs to draw us to himself? That is the mystery of his love. He stands to gain absolutely nothing from anyone in this world. And yet he rejoices like a father doing a, a happy dance over a kid at the salvation of his people. Uh, there's a Scottish pastor called Samuel Rutherford who was trying to impress upon his congregation just how important their salvation was to him. And he was, he was saying, uh, you're constantly on my heart. I weep for you. I pray for you every day. And so on and so on and so on. And he just, he wound up throwing up his hands and saying, your heaven 
is too heavenly for me. God doesn't need to come down. But in heaven, is heaven without hell? And yet, because of the mystery of the cross, our heaven is too heavenly for us. Okay, so we've talked about the love of God. But here in John's gospel, this love has got a particular shape and very specific characteristics. It's the love of the Father. If you've got a, a Bible with you, find the beginning of John chapter 3. In fact, just a bit earlier, John chapter 2, uh, verses 45, excuse me, uh, 24 to 25. So remember where uh, Jesus has uh, been just before this scene. He's, he's cleansed the temple. And then he has um, gone, he's been in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. And there have been many who saw the signs that he's been doing and who believed in his name. But John tells us, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So I want you to see that before our gospel reading from today starts, that's where we've left off. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Okay? Now, the last thing that we got to before we pick up, and then suddenly, bam, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night. John is telling us Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. Nicodemus, who is twice called the man, arrives. And Jesus, as we're about to see, sees straight through to the root of Nicodemus' heart. Nicodemus, uh, you need to understand, was a well-heeled, well-connected guy. When Jesus uh, is buried later on in the gospel, Nicodemus shows up with 75 pounds of precious spices to anoint Jesus' body. That's insane. That's ostentatious. He was a man of extravagant wealth. By the way, I don't mean to imply that 75 pounds would suffice for anointing the body of our Savior. It's very interesting to see what happens with Nicodemus here soon. Let's return to Jesus. He's a man of extravagant wealth. He's also a man of lofty family connections. Uh, he may have been an uncle to a famous rabbi called Nicodemus ben Jurian who claimed to possess storehouses so vast that
that in the event of, of siege or famine, he could feed the whole city of Jerusalem for 10 years. So I only mention that connection as an interesting possibility because it would hint at where Nicodemus may have been coming from the night he visited Jesus. So you see, it was Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, the guy I've just suggested was our Nicodemus's nephew. It was the nephew in whose house the Pharisees in Jerusalem would meet. So Nicodemus has some impressive credentials. He belongs to a leading uh, rabbinic or Pharisee family. He's filthy rich. And he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the high governing body of the Jews. It's made up of the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Um, <laughs> I'm trying not to make the joke about the Sadducees. Sadducees, the Pharisees, and, uh, and, and the lay elite of the, uh, of the Jewish aristocracy. So he's part of that. And yet, he pitches up and meets Jesus at night in stealth mode. Now, it's, it's possible that Nicodemus is just being a good Pharisee, that he's stayed up late studying Torah, and he's just gone out to consult this clever rabbi, Jesus. On the other hand, it seems much more likely that he's fleeing from the Pharisees, fleeing quite possibly a family estate for fear of discovery that he's going to talk to Jesus. John tells us right at the opening of his gospel, Jesus is the light of the world, right? Here's Jesus, and out of the darkness, someone comes into the presence of the light. Well, given all this, you might expect a warmer response from Jesus. I mean, Nicodemus seems to think that Jesus is special, right? But Jesus still isn't impressed. Why not? Well, in the first place, Nicodemus, his identification of Jesus as a good teacher, it's well-intentioned, but it's inadequate. Nicodemus clearly hadn't yet come to grips with who Jesus claimed to be. But in the second place, and this is the key point, Nicodemus has put only one foot in Jesus' door. He still isn't quite sure whether he's ready to let the other foot go. He still identifies with the Sanhedrin. Do you notice, as we look through this, let's see, where's a good example? Ah, verse 2. Look at how Nicodemus, who is by himself, speaks as we. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. When Nicodemus speaks of Jesus, he speaks in the perfect. He's still speaking for the Jewish religious leaders as a representative of them belonging to, in this specific context, the opponents of Jesus' message and ministry. 
So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Yes, but with an inadequate understanding of who Jesus is, paired with a less than subtle air of self-importance. That's what the we is doing. Jesus knows what is in Nicodemus' heart. Division. Nicodemus reminds us of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. Another wealthy member of the Sanhedrin who came and addressed teacher uh, addressed Jesus just like Nicodemus does as teacher. Do you remember the story? Right? The rich young ruler coming and speaking with Jesus and it was he he wound up hanging his head and walking away, didn't he? Why? It was precisely because the rich young ruler remained split in his allegiances, dividing his heart rather than devoting it. That Jesus wrapped up that encounter saying how difficult it is for such a man to enter the kingdom of God. The same holds, same held for Nicodemus. He'd put one foot in Jesus' door. He just wasn't quite sure whether he was ready to let the other foot fall in. But what Jesus does now for Nicodemus is amazing. Nicodemus hasn't actually asked Jesus a question. He's kind of made a statement. Did you notice that? Jesus now transposes Nicodemus' statement into the question that it should have been. The question Nicodemus really needed to be asking in order to allow Jesus to do the work he needed to do in his heart. Nicodemus didn't ask this question because he did not yet understand that Jesus is not just a good teacher who comes and goes. He doesn't just have the rubber stamp of divine approval. He is the Son of God. He says in this very gospel that I have life in myself and I've come to give life to those who are destined to die. So Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus should have been asking. How can I live? This side of the fall, I am subject to sin Death and the devil. I am, as Paul puts it, a fragrance from death to death. Who will save me from this body? It is this question to which Jesus provides an answer in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus is so confused. I mean, and you can understand why. I mean, here's Nicodemus, a teacher, a learned man saying, I know how this works. Birth is a one-way ticket. You know, there, there are no repeats. 
It's, a, it's kind of a one-time deal. So what do, what do you mean born again? And Jesus, I think, is toying with Nicodemus a bit. The same word that we get in the Greek, which means again, can also mean a baptism. So to be born again is not just a second birth in time. It's a second birth from above, a heavenly birth. It's like, look, to have life, we've got to be begotten by an earthly father. But to have eternal life, we must be begotten by a heavenly father. The good news is that through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and through the ministry of the Spirit whom he sent, the love of the Father has caused us, everyone who believes in his name, to be born again to a living hope. Through the lavish love of the Father, we are given the right to exchange our natural inheritance of death, of dust, and decay for the Father's inheritance, for the praise of his glory. The love of God is a very powerful love. It's the love of the Father. I'm aware that for many, even for many in this room, the gift of fatherly love on earth has been denied. Some of you wish you had more of a relationship with your father. Some of you wish that you had less of a relationship with your father than you currently have. As much as our fathers may or may not image the love of our Father in heaven, there is a deep uniqueness to the kind of Father God is. God's fatherhood is only like that of earthly fathers, never comparable to their faults. But glimpse in those moments when even the lousiest father accidentally trips himself into an act of kindness or a word of encouragement. And yet God's fatherly love is unique. For what it means to be begotten of a father has got to mean something totally different in these two cases, right? My father caused my physical existence in this world. Without him, there's no big chunk of human flesh standing in front of you, okay? But then, even if he had died before I was born, I'd still be alive. My father gave me, physically speaking, my being, but I don't draw it from him anymore. This is the way of earthly fathers. We perish to be replaced, if the blessing falls to us, by our sons. But it's otherwise with God. Listen to how 
of the great Anglican preacher and uh, theologian Austin Farrell puts it. The heavenly father of the heavenly son remains the perpetual source out of which he draws his being like water from a spring. There is no other well of life, no origin of existence but his. He's talking about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. But listen, Pharaoh goes on. This heart of being, the blessed Trinity above all worlds, is not a mystery by which the knowledge of the Godhead is withheld from our inquiring minds. Not a mystery. So what is it? It's a pattern of life into which we ourselves, by an unspeakable mercy, are taken up. For Christ, listen very carefully, for Christ joins us with himself in the continual, practical, daily choice of his Father as our Father. Why, he makes us part of himself. He calls us his members, his eyes and tongue, his hands and feet. He puts us where he is. In sonship to his Father. And opens to us the inexhaustible and all-quickening fountain, the spirit of sonship, the river of life, the Holy Spirit. One last thought. We've spent time this morning focusing on just a couple of basics. First, the love of God. Let us remind ourselves. dwelt for a little bit longer on the fatherly love of God, which puts us where Christ is, in the position of sonship to the Father. So we're not just marveling at God's love as enemies who have been reconciled. We're marveling at being adopted sons and daughters in the Son. There's one more uh, basic that we need to remember. For that, let's return to where we started. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. Why? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have final and brief point is just a simple reminder. This is an offer. And the fact that you have no choice in your paternity, either here on earth or there in heaven, does not mean that the Father's children don't recognize this voice. If you have never responded to this amazing call, just waking up. Please do so. 
basically, it's, it is this final basic, this trusting in Christ, that's the main bit of hardware you need to be tightening up this lens. In Jesus, use Lent as an opportunity to renew your trust in Christ. Take advantage of every means of grace he offers you for confirming and strengthening your faith in this insanely, ridiculously, unbelievably amazing truth that God loves the world. Not only did he love us, but he loved us so much that he actually gave his son. Take advantage of every single mean of grace you can to root your heart in that truth. If you have gone a week, two, three weeks longer now without opening your Bible, get into it. Open it. Listen for the Father's voice. Pray. Help my unbelief. A haphazard prayer once a day won't do it. Praying when you're tired at night as you fall asleep in bed, it it won't do it. The occasional Bible reading, it won't do it. for the voice of the Father as you open his word, as you seek him in prayer, as you come to this table, not this week, obviously, but on another week, where bread and wine is given precisely so that your faith will be confirmed, strengthened, nourished as you feed on Christ.